This is Emma Clark here for the Brooklyn Public Library's Our Streets, Our Stories project. It's November 18th, 2015, and I'm here with Grace Shannon at the Clinton Hill Library. So I guess we can start by where were you born, Grace? I was born in Panama, mm -hmm. and which is in Central America. And what age did you move to the United States? I was 15 years old when I came to the United States of America. Did you come with your whole family or by yourself? I came with my mother and my brother and myself, and my father came one year earlier. Mm -hmm. And what did your parents do for a living? My mother was a dressmaker, and my father, he worked for the government in an office, but I don't know exactly what his position was. Mm -hmm. And why did they decide to come here? Good question. My mother, well, my, both parents, but mainly my mother said she wanted to come here so that my brother and I would have better educational opportunities and better job opportunities. Mm -hmm. Did you move straight to New York, to Brooklyn? Ab absolutely. We, w my father came first to Brooklyn and then my mother, my brother, myself in 1959. Mm -hmm. What was the first neighborhood that you lived in? Bedford Stuyvesant. Mm -hmm. And so did you go straight to high school there? Absolutely. I went to Prospect Heights High School in 1959 when I came. Yeah. What was it like in your first couple of days or weeks here? Culture shock. Why? Because, first of all, Panama is a slow country. When you walk, when you come here, everybody is, is walking faster, they're talking faster. And the other thing that I did, that that is what I observed, and also that people were not as polite. They are polite people in New York City. I'm not saying that they aren't. But in general, I was more used to everybody knowing each other on the block and being really friendly. And so I noticed some people were friendly, but a lot of times they were not. Mm -hmm. um, you, in a small country, in a small place like Pariso, you have more of a community feeling mm -hmm. and closeness. What was your childhood in Panama like? Very peaceful because I first lived in Chorillo, which was the, in where the city of Panama is in. Chorillo is in, in the city of Panama. However, we moved to Pariso when I was a young, when I was very young. And Pariso, which as you know, is in a canal zone that was leased by the American government for actually 99 years. When I moved there, it was like the suburbs. It was very peaceful. Uh, the crime was very low, and everything was organized very neatly. The Americans had the married people with children one place, the singles with no children over here, and by nighttime, most children are in, in, in bed. And so it was a very organized, pe and everything was clear cut for me. Married with children, you, you know, you begin to absorb these images and it's like, oh, this is the way it should be. Because the life was really sheltered. It wasn't open like it is here. So you didn't see a lot of the things that you see now in this country. So it was very simple, but peaceful and orderly. And that's why I am, I guess I like order. And what do you think the biggest culture shock was for you, 15-year-old you, when you came here? Oh, when I tell you, you can <laughs> really... Well, look, it's so many things I can't even put my hand around. But this is the biggest culture shock. 
I was walking along, minding my business, and this man, I never forgot it. He looked at me and said, Miss, do you wear shoes in Panama? I was totally shocked that the, of the ignorance. See, what I, I, what I learned from that is that just like we in this country must learn about the culture of other countries, uh, it's important because obviously he didn't know anything about Panama and I was very annoyed that I even remember it today because we always wore shoes. I was neatly dressed. It wasn't like I looked like somebody in the jungles or something. So I was totally uh, disturbed mm -hmm. by the ignorance of this person. Mm -hmm. And what did your parents do when you moved here? My mother, as usual, she so she was a dressmaker in Panama and she got a job. She continuously worked as a dressmaker. My father continuously worked for the government here in an office. But to be honest with you, I don't know exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. So they sort of did the same thing they did in Panama. They were both always working. And I must say that my mother was my role model because she was always working. She made me understand from her example that I must always work to support myself. And my father was always working too. So when I came here, I already had that this idea when you graduate school, get your own place and, you know, orderly, you know, things didn't work out exactly like I planned, but this was my plan. Go to school, graduate, work and support yourself because you're your own, you're your own dependent. And I still feel that that is true. And do you have any siblings? I have one brother. He lives in Florida. <coughs> God bless you. Thank you. And um, he lives in Florida and he works in real estate. And I must say that I'm proud of him because after he graduated from college, I forgot what exactly his major was, but I know it had to do with airplanes and aeronautics, something aeronautics. They, I, I think he graduated from the Academy of Aeronautics and it had to do with planes. And then he had a very successful business and he, like 25 years ago or so, he decided to move with his wife to Florida. But at that, now he's working as a real estate agent. And I'm really proud of him because considering that he's two years older than me, I'm 71 and he's 73, he's still working. He has good work ethics, and he was always an excellent provider for his wife and children. So I'm proud of my one and only sibling. Mm -hmm. So do you have any memories from high school here? Like what? Um, Give me what an are idea. some of the activities that you did, the, the oh, things that you studied? Oh, let's see if I can remember. <laughs> oh God, that's a long Anything time ago. Anything that sticks out. Um, I was a member of the program committee and you know what that do you know no. program committee is when they for example if there's an election a class president or whatever we oversee the election mm -hmm. to make sure it's going the way it should then i was a member of arista junior arista um the glee club and also and then when i graduated my diploma said National Honor Society because my average was, I think it was 91. 
or 92. It's not a society that you attend. It's something they put on your diploma only. I got it as well. You ever heard Bachelor of that? Bachelor yeah. Oh, so you get, okay. When so I graduated high school as well. Okay, mm-hmm. nice. So you know what I'm talking uh-huh. about. So so I was very active and I, uh, I, oh, and I think I was in Big Sister. What I think it's Big Sister. It's, I think there was a Big Sister that I joined to you help children with their homework. I think it was called Big Sister. Anyway, so that was, uh, and what I remember about high school is, fortunately for me, I went to Prospect Heights High School. I'm very grateful because when I went there, first of all, it was multicultural, you know, black and white and different cultures going there, and it was all girls. And in 1959 to 1963, and the good thing about that is, there was no distraction from boys and of course there was no that there was no sexual activity at all so this was the kind of environment i was used to so i was able i really love prospect heights high school because i was able to focus on my studies even uh, and um the other thing about prospect heights high school is that they prepared me for college because I had, they they gave me the subjects i needed to get an academic diploma and one of my favorite subjects one of my was math because I enjoyed the challenge uh, I, by the way my my experience in high school was always wonderful because I enjoyed learning things period and to me it was always an exciting place and because it was peaceful I don't remember being bullied I mean it was just a peaceful environment that I needed to grow and really thrive because I'm coming from a back from a place where in the canal zone where it was peaceful you know so I mean I was used to that so going to Prospect Heights High School at that point was peaceful now it's co-ed I don't know what's going on now but for me it was wonderful and so in high school like I said it was peaceful we got along well, but I love math, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and then I took only one year of calculus, and uh, I took, um, and I like the sciences too. You know, chemistry was was uh, challenging, but but I like science, biology, and I took physics, but only one year, but it was a great experience because it challenged me all the time. And I just love doing homework and all that good stuff. So I had a good experience in high school. Mm-hmm. Did you attend college? Well, first I, I attended um, Long Island University. And I was on a full scholarship. But two years later, I dropped out. My mother died and uh, some I had a problem in my home. So I chose to leave so at age 20 I after being a sophomore I dropped out of college got a job and started supporting myself so years later I went back to college in uh, after university at night and that's when I got my bachelor's degree in social work Mm -hmm. so what was that first job oh that's a good question (laughs) a good question the first job was Pulling, uh, pulling stocks and bonds. 
at Mary Lynch Pierce Fenner and Smith. So all day long, the original stocks and bonds, you're pulling them from these bins all day long. And the good news, it was full time. It paid, it gave me enough money to pay my bills and have money in the bank, so it was good. Was that in Manhattan? Yes, that that is um in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yes, I have heard of them. Unfortunately, they collapsed <laughs> in 2008. Yep. You heard that? Of course. Yeah. No, everybody going to pay attention <laughs> to what's going on in the news. So that was it. That was my first job, and I enjoyed it because it paid the bills. Mm-hmm. And it was full-time, of course. And were you living in bedside that whole time, or did you move? Oh, no. Once I started working and I moved from from the family apartment, I moved to Crown Heights. So I lived somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And how long were you in Crown Heights for? You know, I can't remember (laughs) that. I I really, I'm not trying to be funny. I don't remember. Sure. Did you live in any other neighborhoods before you went to Clinton Hill? Crown Heights, and then I before, uh, then uh, I eventually moved to the Bronx for five years, and then, and, and and about two years in Manhattan, and then I moved back to Brooklyn because I always felt that Brooklyn was home because it was quieter, it's more community oriented. I felt, and so. I moved back to Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn. What has been your favorite neighborhood in Brooklyn? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I, I have to say Clinton Hill. Why? Because it's the most peaceful that I've seen. Because actually, I'll just say this quickly. I lived in Conites in uh, Schenectady on Schenectady Avenue for quite a while. And in those years, I can't remember the exact years, but it was peaceful. I liked it very much. It was clean and it was wonderful. However, so when I lived there, it was okay. What the what I the problem I see with Cronites now is I don't understand why the Jews are having a problem with the blacks. We that didn't act that didn't exist when I was living there. So I feel the neighborhood has changed, and that bothers me. But if it wasn't for that, I would say I like both. Actually, I like Cronites and Clinton Hill almost the same, but because in times that I was living there, it was peaceful like it is in Clinton Hill. And it was clean. I'm not saying it's dirty. I'm just saying the parallel. And also, it was a low crime rate in those years those years when I lived there. So actually I would say I like both. I just feel a little disturbed that when I heard the riots between the Jews and the blacks and all this foolishness, because to me, I know everybody have their own religious beliefs, but my thing is someone created all of us and I believe strongly that God created all of us. So to me, I feel strongly that connects us all. That's number one. Number two, since my parents never taught me anything about uh, discrimination and this one, this person is better than you or you are better, 
my attitude even before I became a Christian born again Christian is you have to love everybody because God made us all to live on this planet in peace but if we begin to create these things these ideas about this one is it's not in the Bible if you're a Christian nothing in the Bible says black people are better than white or whatever he said in Genesis, he said, I, we cre I created this earth so you'll have dominion over the earth. He didn't say white people, black people. He assumed, I'm guessing, that we all were going to live here in peace. So my view, my worldview is, it's very destructive to be racist. Because when you begin to say, because my thing is, there's good and bad in black people. There are some black people I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even talk to. There's good and bad in white people. I had a fantastic white supervisor, male, fabulous. When I was investigating child abuse and neglect, fabulous. And he thought I was good too because he said I always followed his instructions. So, and so my point is, this is a touchy subject because like I said, I feel that God created us all to live together. But if we start making distinctions and saying, oh, but you are better than me, or then you don't have equal justice, you don't have equal rights, and that brings strife. But you see, if you really want peace, you would value everyone on their own merit. And that's what I do. I don't care if you're white, black, yellow, or yellow or red. These are the races that we invented. And I, that is destructive because anything that separates us and makes us fight and so on. There is no complete prosperity in wars. So I feel strongly if we were not so greedy that some countries want to have more than the other and sometimes in order to do that they pretend they state that that country is inferior or if somebody wants something more than the other. For example, when slavery came about, the first thing they started to say is black Amer black people are inferior to white people. And they had, this was interesting, and they had, this is all I'm going to say about this. They had, I saw a book in the library and I was minding my business and I saw that they were trying to show the profile. And they said, you see the profile? Okay, I just wanted to say. So the profile in the book was supposed to show that the profile of black person resembles that of a monkey. And these were scientists that were, I forgot the name of the scientists, but they were. So my point is when you start doing that, of course, one of the reasons is you want more for yourself. It's greed. So you dehumanize the person, make, give them less value to justify using them as slaves and all that. But like I said, even though I know the history, because I took a class in college called Black and Ethnic Experience, I wanted to know what was this slavery and Nat, Nat Turner and all these abolitionists, whatever. But it was very enlightening because what I learned, just remember I said to you that there are good and bad in every race? Okay. One of the enlightening things that I learned is this. When Harriet Tubman was uh, the conductor of the Underground Railroad and she was one of the greatest abolitionists, a lot of people that were part of the Underground Railroad were white. 
And then John Brown, I think, was a white abolitionist. So my point is, you have to search for the truth. And it, it backs me up because some of those, John Brown, if I'm not mistaken, was killed because he was such a militant and he was such a great abolitionist. So my point is there's humanity in all of us because the same person, the same God created all of us. So that's all I wanted to say about that. So I wanted to ask you, were you working at Merrill Lynch until you decided to go back for your degree? Okay. Or was there anything in between? Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't that quick. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that quick. What happened is, okay, so I'm point, what, what I did next was, as I was pulling the stocks and bonds, I look across the way, and there were people key punching. That's before your time. Those were cars with holes. And you, the keyboard is like a typewriter. But when you type, you type holes in cards. That's key punching. And I said, this job is wonderful, but I'm walking all day. You only sit when it's lunchtime. And I was concerned about varicose veins, pains in my leg. Cause, okay, I'm 20. I'm not going to be 20 forever. So I knew I needed a, I had to change to something sitting. So the, the key punch, in, in those days, key punching jobs were very plentiful because I checked the one ad. So what I did while I was there, I went to key punch school at night. Well, I, at first I asked my boss if I could transfer to the key punch department. He said, we don't do that. So I went to school, key punching school for, for I don't remember how long, three months, I think. I, anyway, I got the diploma. I showed my boss. And he transferred me. So I did that for years. And then suddenly I said, okay, I have the opportunity. Let me go back to school at night to get finished getting my degree because I recognized that I was feeling alienated from this job that I'd done for so many years. I felt suddenly like I was part of the, machi the, the machine. And that's a very bad feeling. It, you know, I felt dehumanized, so I said, I need to go back and do something more interesting. And I'm glad that I did uh, graduate with a bachelor's degree in social work because I recognized I really liked the idea of being paid to help somebody else. Because that's the way they taught us. They said, it's a partnership. You're not up here, and that person is down here. I like the way they trained us. They said, the person... You're a partner with that person. You know, you have a plan. Well, they have what they have to do and what you have to do. There are different things. And together you get, you help that person move forward. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I like the way they humanized it because they made us realize that we're not better than them. Uh, what they taught us was the client. That's what they call it. You know, the client... The client needs food, you need food. You may not shop in the same place, but you need food. Both of you need food. Both of you need clothes. You may not shop in the same stores, but you both need clothes. Then the th next thing they said, and you need somewhere to live. What they were trying to, what they taught us was that we're, we're, there's no difference between us, except maybe income. But there's no difference. In fact, they made it very clear that you are one. You could be 
one paycheck from becoming a client. So they made us understand, at least the way I was trained is, you're not better than that person. Because first of all, and, and you, you have a lot in common. You have a lot more in common than differences. So that way, and it helped me because it changed my perspective. When a client comes in and you use the last names only, because that's the way you're, it, it, it worked better for me. Because they could sense that I don't feel better than them and they could sense that I'm really concerned about their welfare. So to me, that job was what I was fitted in my personality. Although it was difficult at times, but I don't care. It was really fulfilling. Mm -hmm. What are, do you have any really vivid memories from your years doing social work? Either, either bad or good. Anything that really stands out? Oh gosh, yes. Oh gosh. When I was working, um, investigating child abuse and neglect, at that time, it was called Special Services for Children. Today, it's called Child Welfare Administration. I don't know why they changed the names, but it used to be called, it, when I was there, Special Services for Children. And what was really disturbing to me is I had a client that was a crack addict, and she lived there with a young baby and her grandmother. So what I, had to, what I did was I had to remind her constantly that I'm monitoring her attendance in the drug treatment program because you get a release of you get a release of information or I think that's what you call it where the person where you get permission to get into that person's rec um, attendance and so that was part of my job so I called and I realized every time I called, they would say she's not attending. That wasn't good. So that led to my having eventually a conversation with my supervisor. Because you're really not supposed to remove children unless you consult your supervisor. He's supposed to have the last word. So what happened? We had to do, I had to do this. And I didn't want to do it, but I didn't have a choice. So what happens is... When you're going to remove a baby, because it was a baby, when you go under one year old, when you're going to remove a baby, you have to go to the police precinct nearest to where that person lives because they accompany you as you remove the child. Because when people know you're going to remove their children, they can become violent or whatever. So I knew what to do because that's all they train you. So I went, went to the police precinct and I came. I went to remove this baby. However, I was surprised for the way the mother cried. She wasn't violent, but she was crying hysterically. And although I appeared calm, it bothered me the way she was acting. But but our clients, when you are, um, when you investigate child abuse and neglect, your clients is not the parents; it's the children. So all I could think of is. I have to protect this child because she continued using co crack cocaine and what can happen is she could drop the baby or hurt him even though the grandma was in the home too but she also had access to that child. So I was very relieved when the child was removed and then I took her to where the super the, the supervisor and then when you're removing you're in touch with your supervisor constantly and then he he, he told me 
where to take the child, the baby. And I took the taxi, took the baby. And like I said, that, that was a very disturbing experience for me. One, to have to remove the child, baby. Two, that the mother didn't do what she was supposed to and the hysterical crying. But I wasn't moved because if I didn't remove that baby and something happened to the baby, I'm in trouble. The supervisor is in trouble, and probably the whole, the the whole um, child protective services agency, because you have seen, unfortunately, there have been unfortunate incidents since where a baby, so uh, in some situations where a caseworker investigated and didn't remove the baby, and then the baby ends up or the child ends up dead. And the other thing is that job. I I, I always said this. That particular job was one of the most difficult. Why? Because you're protecting babies and you have to be absolutely careful about your investigation. Because if you say the, that is unfounded, that nothing is wrong and something is wrong and you make, you know, like they tell you normally you look at the child's arms and so on. You look to see if there's any electrical uh, lines in the way or look for any drug paraphernalia or whatever but if you miss something that could have sent a signal that that child is in danger you're in trouble because that child could end up dead or it so my point is working there I was always hoping that I did a thorough investigation which is what they teach us to do and one of the interesting thing about that job is as you investigate whether there's electrical wires or uh, drug paraphernalia, anything, and look at the child's arms and legs to see if there are any bruises and all that. You also have to look at the parents. You have to make sure that when you're talking to the parents that you don't see any indication that they're on drugs because that's part of your training. They train you to know that if a person is taking a certain drug, this is what this is the way they behave so you have to be looking at the child the parents and all of that and the last thing they teach you which I thought was interesting you must anywhere you go you must look in that refrigerator and write down every single item and I thought that was interesting so to me that job was the most difficult because you're dealing with children's lives and if you don't, if you don't conduct a extremely thorough investigation and miss something, you could give the wrong verdict about that that home, and that child could end up dead or injured. So I was a little tense when I was doing that job because you never know what you're gonna. And then the other thing that was interesting that made it a little difficult because I heard stories of caseworkers already being beaten up because when they when they know you are from child protective service some of them automatically think you're going to remove their child so that's another reason it was difficult but I took the job because when you first come out of college my thing is take what you can get in your field because it gives me the experience anyway but the, the good thing about that job it gives you a lot of exposure there's so many levels of this job because I remember 
one of the clients this is a different client they were suspected that they were abusing these children and i had to go to the child's school to interview her not to interview her at home i thought that was interesting then another thing is i had to go to the doctor speak to him find out about medical re records or whatever i forgot something about her bruise or whatever i don't know all i know i remember going to a hospital i don't remember what information they revealed to me but it is so many levels to this job so for someone that likes to start out with an interesting job with many layers of social work this is it because it challenges you on many levels mm -hmm. so when you go to another job that's not so challenging you're ready and so you're retired now oh yes don't you see i'm 71 <laughs> and what have you been doing in your retirement talking to you <laughs> knitting you were saying well uh, <laughs> that's a good loaded question <laughs> but anyway okay what i do well let's see about nine years ago i'm a first of all i'm a member of the brooklyn tabernacle church on 17 smith street so about nine years ago maybe nine years nine years ago I joined the uh, Ministry of Health and so what happens is the Ministry of Health is just like it says you help other ministries so what we did mainly for those years was if let's say they have a Thanksgiving dinner they ask us to serve the food if they have a retirement they ask us one time team challenge uh, center the Teen Challenges Challenge Center for from all over the country, the choir of that Teen Challenge Center came to our church and we served them the food. But we also help with the baptism. If, if they are short of workers anywhere, Ministry of Health jumps in. That's why I liked it. And so right now we're doing, well, we, we can still do all the other things we did, but what we're mainly doing now is um, is um, ushering. So now everybody has their schedule. Like my schedule is the first, second, and the fourth Sunday of every month I usher. And um, so, and as part of that ministry, we are we're members of the Rejuvenate Ministry. We're helping them. And it's a very wonderful ministry because once on a Saturday, one Saturday every month, we, I would say, babysit special needs children that have autism. But, and so, but it, it's not just like babysitting and you just, no. They have it set up that you have a schedule so that you can stimulate these children. So. There's a time, they have a, the schedule, and there's a time where you read to them. And everybody must be quiet and read. Then you have story time, and you read a story. Then there's a video with something from the Bible, a story from the Bible, on music. And so what they do is they try to, uh, to stimulate these children. While we're doing that, the parents are doing something else. For example, last month, 
on a Saturday, of course, that's when we the rejuvenate the rejuvenate ministries from nine to about twelve. But this time, for the first time, we took the children to bowling, and I love bowling anyway. <laughs> I used to always bowl, so this was fantastic for me. But what they did was, anytime we work with the children, is to free the parents to do other things like a spa day, exercise. These are things that is us organized by the church so when bowling came along the obviously the church was paying for the bowling for all of us for the workers for the leader and for the children so what they did was you work with one child they, they prefer if it's a one-on-one -on -one. so while you're bowling with the child that you're assigned to you're also bowling so everybody's name is so it was great fun for me i enjoyed it so but this this month i got a call from the leader and she said we're going to do something different we're going to have a party to celebrate the workers that that came to work on saturdays so that's one of the that that's one of the things i'm involved in in the church and then the second thing is it's called it, it's um the uh nursing home ministry so twice a month we go to cabs nursing home we minister to them we speak to them about jesus and we always read from the bible explain what it means and then we offer them an opportunity to accept jesus christ as their lord and savior because we know that the days are numbered you know at some point Jesus is coming back and and the grace is over so we're in a period of grace now so when we minister to them it's really bringing church in the nursing home because they cannot come to ch to any church outside they're too sick so we offer them salvation if they want to accept Jesus Christ and like I said we read from the Bible we interpret it and we let them know they're welcome if they're ready to accept Jesus Christ they can do so at any time so that's twice a week and then um i also on thursdays oh i was also <laughs> a member of the access arrive but i took a leave of absence and that's a fantastic ministry because they started this ministry quite recently maybe five years ago but what happened is many of many times when people would go on the accessorite. The accessorite sometimes would come during the service and leave. Or sometimes, because they got, the church got a lot of complaints, sometimes the accessorite would not even come. One time a lady stayed until 11 o'clock by herself waiting for the accessorite. So these were the complaints. So the pastors prayed about it and said, we need to, join, we need to start an accessorite ministry. So what we do, I thought was very good is they have a screen because remember winter comes and you don't want to be standing outside so what they did is when the vans are approaching we know from what angle there's a video like a tv screen and it shows you when the van is approaching so when the van is approaching instead of the person that's that has to use the accessorite goes out there we go out there we find out who they want and then we already registered them so we know 
what time they're supposed to be picked up because and then we we'll let them know you're not going to you are not going to leave before the time because a lot of time they come too early and there's a grace period so i remind them and there's a grace period so you're supposed to leave at such and such a time so by us being there and then the other thing is if they don't come very seldom but sometimes that happens we call from the church phone or sometimes we use their cell phone so the good news is that the commuters have stated that their their service is better not 100 percent, but at least it's better mm -hmm. so then in the senior center you know i joined grace agard oh i forgot at the church i also sometimes go on a thursday night i think this thursday night there's the new hope ministry and what they do is a fantastic job of when we go there we're praying to break the the, the stronghold of human trafficking and these this ministry is dedicated to give us information about human trafficking to let us know also that it's not only over uh, in other world, in, in in foreign countries it's right here and they also explain to to us and let us know what what success they've had and then basically we pray to break the stronghold of the enemy which is satan because you human trafficking as you know is horrific and it's not only children it's adults also so that's what i do mm -hmm. sometime on thursday night um oh so it's senior citizen center well i joined that nine years ago and um right at 966 fulton street so what i've done there is sometime i go um sometime i i like to exercise there because i know exercise is extremely important for everybody's health and i and especially seniors because seniors tend to be sedentary and i try to encourage seniors to exercise if they can mm -hmm. because th their internal organs would work better and uh, the other thing I do is, well, I've done, I've played bingo there. I've, um, I have gone on trips like to the Schomburg Research Center, um, to the aquarium. Uh, recently, we went to a gospel course at Teresa Moore Center. They were, they have a, a gospel well there were three gospel choirs so we just went there friday pass that's what that's one of the things i did so i've done a few things and then we had a very interesting a group called alert and alive and that for me was just up my alley because what it what they do is they ask you questions like what was significant about your childhood things that make you think about that makes your mind to stimulate your mind they don't have it anymore but I, I they claim they didn't have enough people attending but to me i told them i said this is one of the better activities because it stimulates your brain it helps anything that stimulates the brain is very good mm -hmm. so what can i say i try i think we're pretty much out of time here 
Okay, like you're having a wonderful retirement. <laughs> I do. It sounds like it. You sound very busy. Well, I try to be because I was always active when I was working. Mm -hmm. Going to bowling or yeah. a, a boat ride or a bus ride. So you might as well stay busy now. Well, if I don't, I'll deteriorate. Mm -hmm. my, my, in fact, I just want to throw this in. When was it? Yesterday. Someone came. And she was a doctor. She didn't even look like a doctor. Why? Because she looked so young. Very petite, but she's a doctor. And she actually came to talk about memory loss. And she said something very interesting to us. She said, one of the things that you can do to... Now, there's no guarantee of preventing Alzheimer's or dementia. However, to not be at risk a high risk for it you need to be active mentally socially intellectually and she said and you need to eat a balanced meals you need to exercise you must and it's it's important if you learn something new and i mean it was interesting because i've noticed that sometimes seniors tend to isolate themselves mm -hmm. and that is not good for the mind the body so when she said that i'm glad that the program manager decided to have her there because a lot of seniors needed to hear that mm -hmm. so that's all i have to say but the time is up anyway thank you grace